sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Uh, please come in and have a seat. All the uh, books surrounding you are those used to research our show and the individual to my uh, right here, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any uh, passages that will be uh, directly quoted from the sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I hope everyone's doing well and staying safe out there. Yes, uh, maybe even able to enjoy some summer activities during this time of plague and civil war. Oh, it's been nice to get out and open the hives, do a bit of gardening. We always used to go to the lake when I was a kid, which gave me the idea for our topic, since uh, there were always frogs around. And the idea for dinner. Toad in the hole. It doesn't involve actual toads, in case anyone is wondering. No, the uh, traditional meat is just sausage, so I'm not averse to eating frog. I think that would have been a bit much for me to prepare. You certainly made that clear. What does that mean? You seemed upset that I should even talk about it. I don't know where you get frogs for cooking now. Anyway, there used to be a man down by the lake who would sell them, but it always felt dodgy, like you were making a drug deal or something. I wouldn't want anything to do with it. He was always finding bodies when he was out at night catching frogs. Apparently, uh, they attracted eels, which he also sold, so he didn't tell the police right away. And he ended up doing time. I don't know how long, but no more frogs, no more eels. Disgusting. Yeah, well, I didn't think anything disgusted you more than eating frogs until I asked you about toad in the hole, and you had to go hide in your room for three hours. It was only an hour. I thought you were saying something vulgar and upsetting. And the pudding that isn't the pudding, it, it was all just confusion. I, I guess uh, popover would be the uh, American term for Yorkshire pudding. Uh, toad in the hole, for our American listeners, is a sausage baked in Yorkshire pudding. Such an ugly name. Why on earth would you call it that? Different theories. The one I like is the idea that the sausage being sort of hidden in the pastry is like one of those toads that are found encased in rock, miraculously alive. You know, the Charles Fort stuff. We had one of those where I grew up. It was in a cave. In a mine or a cave? A cave the kids visited out in the woods. They always wanted me to go see it, but caves make me nervous. If it wasn't a mine, how was it discovered? The stories are usually about rocks broken open in mines or quarries and the live toad found inside. It was still inside the rock. They said you could hear it croaking in the wall. Croak once for yes, twice for no, like fortune telling. That's a whole different thing. I didn't want to go, so they asked questions about me. Not that I wanted them to. And then they would come and tell me all the things a toad said. Cruel things. Sounds like they were just teasing you. That's what mother said. Things got better when we started homeschooling, but I've always hated toads. It's in their eyes, a cruel look. Something knowing and cruel. Well, it's an interesting story of fortune-telling toad in a cave. I guess that's what it is to you. Who knows what they would have done to me if they'd gotten me into that cave in the dark? Something terrible, I'm sure. You know, every time I have a dinner request that's a little unusual, I feel like you have to trot out some horrible negative story. I'm not making this up. I just feel like there's some negativity about special requests. When I brought up having duck, it was something about your neighbor drinking turpentine and going blind, and I don't even know how that was supposed to be related well, Duck. you're the one talking about corpses in a swamp when frog legs come up. It, it was a lake, but you, you have a point. It's not your fault. 
And it's not like me to be negative. I think the house is affecting us. There's something about it. Something in the air somehow. Let's just try to get going on this so we can eat while it's still hot. <laughs> Episode... You can eat. Episode 49, Toad Magic. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further uh, explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus on the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive a number of unique and sometimes handcrafted rewards related to the show and its themes. And I'll have more on all that at the end of the episode. This is a warning chirp of the boreal toad, Bufo boreas, a species that has no mating call, but still utters a warning chirp if seized by another male. ...forced back and forth over the vocal cords at approximately 75 times per second, to produce a high-pitched trill of the southern toad, or first at normal speed, and then reduced to half the normal speed. Toads traditionally have been an object of revulsion, not simply because of their appearance, but also their toxicity. When a toad is molested, it produces a frothy substance from two wart-like parotid glands on its back, a venom called bufotoxin, named for the family Bufenidae, a land-dwelling subset of the order Anura, that is, frogs. So, toads are a subset of frogs, just to be clear. The toxicity of their poison can vary widely depending on the particular species, but this danger, however great, has contributed to the animal's folkloric status. In the first century, the creatures have a diabolical cameo in the Book of Revelation as three foul spirits, like frogs, coming from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. And as early as 35 BC, the Roman writer Horace includes eggs dipped in the blood of foul frogs in the evil concoctions brewed by the witch Canidia, whom we discussed in our Cave Witches episode. But it's in the early modern period when the connection between witches and toads becomes most prominent. Now from a 1591 pamphlet, News from Scotland, we hear about the activities of Agnes Sampson, a uh, fairly famous witch from that country. She took a black toad and did hang the same up by the heels three days and collected and gathered the venom as it dropped and fell from it into an oyster shell and kept the same venom close covered. Agnes Sampson, known as the wise wife of Keith, was an elderly matron caught up in an alleged plot against James VI of Scotland before he became James I of England. The poison reportedly was intended to be applied to some garment or linen belonging to the king in order to bewitch him to death and put him to such extraordinary pains as if he had been lying upon sharp thorns and ends of needles. But that was only part of the mischief investigated in what's known as the North Berwick Witch Trials, which from 1590 to 1592 resulted in the interrogation of more than 70 suspects. The heart of it was a supernatural assault on the ship bearing James back from Oslo to Scotland with his new wife Anna of Denmark, that is a storm which supposedly was caused by bewitched cats thrown into the sea. The Scottish trial was inspired by similar proceedings in Denmark, and it drew the interest of James, who 
personally questioned Samson and other defendants, developing an obsession with witches and devils that led him to pen his 1597 book, Demonology, a uh, highly influential source for later witch hunters and writers on the subject. Though we're all aware of the tragic role that torture played in generating false confessions in these cases, there does seem to have been an actual plot against the king, largely instigated by Francis Stuart, the fifth Earl of Bothwell. Furious over the beheading of James' mother, Mary Queen of Scots, Stuart had pushed for the invasion of England, which James opposed. Offended at this betrayal to his cherished cause, Stuart began consulting his friend Richard Graham, a figure well known within the aristocracy for his involvement in necromancy. He was one of the co-conspirators named by Agnes Sampson in the trials. And court records speak of more than 21 meetings between Stuart and Graham, which included discussions of a plan to concoct a poison and... Ooze the juices on the king. The ingredients? Adder skins, toad skins, and hippomanes. The last being a growth found on the head of a newborn foal, something often attributed with magical properties. Agnes Sampson was found guilty and burned at the stake, along with two other, possibly more, defendants in 1591, and Graham met the same fate in 1592. But elements of this trial have lived on in English literature. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. <laughs> in Shakespeare's Macbeth. In the poisoned entrails throw, told that under cold stone, days and nights as thirty-one, sweat and venom, sleeping god, boil our fast in the charmed pot. Probably written in 1606, a few years after James had ascended to the English throne, this play is widely regarded as Shakespeare's effort to curry favor with the monarch. Though ironically, he hated the play, thanks to its gory violence. A well-known scene is the charm that's spoken around the cauldron in Act 4, it begins as the uh, first witch drops into the brew a toad that under cold stone days and nights has 31 sweltered venom sleeping got. And later there's a second frog thrown in, in a familiar line. Eye of newt and toe of frog. Comparisons have been drawn between the first toad sweltering or sweating venom under a stone for 31 days to Agnes Sampson's toad hung up three days to drip out its poison. But uh, the most important parallel with the North Berwick case is one of the witches referring to sailing in a sieve. A strange detail that's also mentioned in the uh, North Berwick testimonies. Shakespeare also has a witch talk about setting a storm to sink the uh, ship or bark of an enemy. Though his bark cannot be lost, Yet it shall be tempest-tossed. And the same might be said in the case of James. Perhaps the most flattering element to James was the virtuous depiction of Macbeth's victim, Lord Banquo, whom James regarded as an ancestor, despite the figure actually being uh, more of an uh, imaginary conglomerate borrowed by Shakespeare from the pseudo-historical volume Holinshed's Chronicles. The curse that's traditionally said to lay on actors and those involved in productions of Macbeth has uh, long been explained as the result of Shakespeare irking some contemporary witches by using closely guarded secret chants or elements of their craft in his play. While this bit of folklore is invoked to explain any number of mishaps, particularly from 1920 to today, the most notorious is surely the uh, 1848 example, the Astor Place riots, in which more than two dozen people were killed and 120 injured in a conflict between supporters of visiting English actor William McCready and American favorite Edwin Forrest, both playing in competing versions of Macbeth in New York theaters only blocks apart. One last 
bit from Macbeth for reflecting witchcraft beliefs of the day, particularly in England. In the first scene, two of the witches are called away by offstage entities by the names of Grimalkin and Paddock. Grimalkin was a term that meant just gray cat, and a paddock was another name for a toad. These would have been the witches' familiars, that is, demons in the shape of animals doing their bidding. There are many instances of such creatures from Great Britain through the 16th to 17th centuries. In Scotland, Isabel Gowdy, who made quite a splash with her lurid stories of witches' sabbaths, testified that her coven had sent a plow drawn by toads instead of oxen, going several times about the field, all the coven following and praying to the devil. And the field thereby made barren was abandoned by its owner to the coven's use. From uh, Essex, we have the story of Elizabeth Francis, who in 1579 was reported to possess a familiar by the name of Satan, uh, something that turned from cat to toad and back again, and would steal sheep for her, and by its touch inflicted on her troublesome husband a lameness whereof he cannot be healed. In exchange for some delicious-looking cakes freshly baked by her elderly neighbor, Agnes Waterhouse, Elizabeth traded Satan, instructing Agnes that she would need to sustain the creature on drops of her own blood, as had been her practice. The creature now in its uh, toad form was placed by Agnes a great while in wool in a pot. Until, uh, according to court testimony, poverty obliged her to sacrifice the wool. And after being deprived of his uh, comfy wool, the toad Satan was said to have convinced Agnes's daughter Joan to surrender her soul to the devil. Margaret Pearson, whose story appears in a 1613 pamphlet, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster, was said to have sent a toad familiar against an enemy, even while she herself was serving time in prison. It appeared on her enemy's hearth, emerging from the fire clean to a pan of milk she removed from the flames. Though it seems to have done little more than startle her. In a 1645 trial in Bury St. Edmunds, one overseen by notorious witchfinder Matthew Hopkins, testimonies imply that a woman by the name of Amy Dunny tormented a victim in the form of a toad, one which was snatched up and thrown into the fireplace. As soon as it was in the fire, it made a great and horrible noise, and after a space, there was a flashing in the fire like gunpowder making a noise like the discharge of a pistol. And thereupon, the toad was never more seen nor heard. The next day, it was reported that Dunny was in a most lamentable condition, having her face all scorched with fire, and that she was sitting alone in her house, in her smock, without any fire. Finally, there's a uh, much more skeptical story of a nameless witch said to possess a familiar in the form of a toad, in the town of Newmarket. I say uh, skeptical because it involves non-believer William Harvey, physician to Charles I, who, in 1632, accompanied the monarch on a visit to that town. Eager to investigate the matter for himself, he's said to have gained the confidence of the witch by claiming to himself be a wizard. Uh, the story is recounted in a 1685 letter to a Cambridgeshire clergyman from an unidentified acquaintance of Harvey's. When the physician asked to see the toad, the letter says, the old woman immediately fetched a little milk and put it in a flat dish and went to a chest and chucked with her mouth as toads do when they call one another. And immediately a toad came from under the chest and drank some of the milk. Suggesting that he'd like to share some ale with the woman, he provides her with a shilling with which to purchase some. And uh, while she's on her errand, Harvey imitates the old woman's chuck-chuck noise, attracting the friendly creature. And he happens to have along a pair of tongs, and with them he... Catched up the toad in them, 
his dissecting knife was ready also. He opened the toad's belly. Out came the milk. When the woman returns to discover her guest's ghastly behavior, she, quite understandably, flew like a tigress at his face. Harvey calms her by telling her that his experiment has revealed her frog to be quite ordinary and no embodied spirit, proving that she is no witch and, therefore, that he needn't arrest her as he had planned to otherwise do. And with this, he escapes seemingly too taken with his own scientific enlightenment to realize his own cruelty. Now, to return to the issue of the toad's toxicity, a topic which loomed large in medieval imagination. In the 1150s, German abbess and philosopher, theologian, Hildegard von Bingen wrote in her volume Physica that the creature had some diabolical art in it, adding that a cat, by licking a toad, could itself become poisonous. And why the cat is still up and about licking people, I guess, could only be explained by its nine lives. And there's also a medieval legend involving the English boy saint, William of Norwich, and a woman named Wimark who was imprisoned in Gainsborough. According to a hagiography written in 1173 by Thomas of Monmouth, in her prison, Wimmerk suffered miserable cold, hunger, stench, and attacks of toads. The last provides her and her fellow prisoners an idea for escape. They took a toad, of which there were many in the prison, and mixed its poison with the drink, and invited the jailer to drink it. The, uh justifiably suspicious jailer insists that they drink it first and forces them to do so. Immediately, the venom crept through the limbs of each and all of them swelled up in so wonderful and horrid a manner that any man who saw them would be convinced that their skin must burst. Of the poisoned prisoners, only Wimmerk survives but as a result of the incident, she suffered seven years from monstrous swelling. Upon her release, she finds that no doctor can relieve her, which is uh, where the saint comes in. She visits his tomb in Norwich Cathedral, and upon kissing it, she vomited all that poisonous discharge on the pavement. It was horrible, no, unbearable that there was enough of it to fill a vessel of the largest size, that the bystanders were thus constrained to leave the place, and the sacristans to cleanse the spot and strew it with fragrant herbs. Her epic regurgitation, of course, cures her permanently, and the remainder of her life is spent in gratitude to St. William of Norwich. Luckily, the medieval imagination also provided an equally fanciful cure for toad poisonings, one thoughtfully provided by the toad itself. If you're going to carry all that poison around within you, so the reasoning went, you would surely have to have some ability to neutralize it. And that power is resident in what's called a toadstone. Shakespeare alludes to it in As You Like It. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. It's a brownish, naturally round or oval stone, which from the 14th through 18th century was set in rings and amulets, prized for their ability to deflect not only the effects of toad poison, but all venomous bites and stings. To a lesser extent, was also believed to work against epilepsy, stomach ailments, diseases of the kidneys, which the stone resembles a little bit in color and appearance, and could ward off malevolent fairies, or uh, simply function as a source of good luck. Uh, incidentally, a bit of film trivia in The Wicker Man, in a scene in the Summer Isle schoolhouse, part of the lessons written out on the chalkboard include. The line, The toadstone preserves the newly born from the weird woman. Different methods of obtaining the stone are suggested, though all seem to agree. It's best obtained from a very large and very old toad. 
One book from the 1800s suggests that it should be obtained by burying a dead toad near an anthill and letting the insects pick away the flesh to reveal the stone. But other sources insist it must be provided by a living animal. Giambattista della Porta, in his 1584 volume, The Eighth Book of Natural Magic, writes, They say it is taken from living toads in a red cloth, in which color they are much delighted. For while they sport themselves upon the scarlet, the stone droppeth out of their heads and falleth through a hole made in the middle into a box set under for that purpose, else they will suck it up again. 17th century Flemish naturalist and founder of modern mineralogy, Anselmus Botius, uh, attempted this experiment as a boy, though he was uh, little gratified by the results of his uh, night-long vigil with the toad. It's nicely summed up in Edward Holmes' 1895 Natural History Lore and Legend. The toad entirely declined to be lured into any frivolities that might cause him the loss of his precious jewel. Superstitious thinking about toads continued well into the 19th century. As late as 1886, Richard Worth, in his A History of Devonshire, comments on the toad's witchcraft associations, noting that it sadly leads to the cremation of multitudes of miserable toads who are looked upon as emissaries of the evil one. While nearby in Dorset, George Roberts, a historian of that region, describes the treatment of toads quite differently saying that at the time of his writing in 1834, a toad makes its way into a home is ejected with the greatest care, and no injury was offered, because they were regarded as being used as familiars by witches, and regarded with veneration and awe. In the 1800s, toads were also prevalent in folk medicine and the magic cures offered by England's cunning folk. An 1884 edition of Chambers' Journal records, among various treatments for whooping cough in Shropshire, Another horrible thing was to draw three yards of black ribbon through the body of a frog and wear it round the neck. Or the suffering child may breathe into a frog's mouth to be rid of the illness. In uh, Cheshire, the mother, Whose child has a cough knows that she has only to poke a toad's head into her child's mouth to transfer the whooping cough to the toad. And in the cinematic world of The Wicker Man on Summer Isle, as late as 1973, the uh, frog-in-mouth remedy was suggested, not for coughs, but sore throats. It's just a little frog. It'll do that poor sore throat good. Now, in he goes. The medicinal use of toads to cure innumerable problems was so important that it became its own specialty with individuals known as toad doctors practicing locally or roaming from town to town. The most famous of these perhaps being Dorset's John Buckland who practiced in the mid-1800s. He even sponsored a toad fair in early May on dates fortuitously aligned with lunar cycles. An 1896 edition of Chambers' Journal reports that The quack sold at no cheap rate, legs torn from the bodies of living toads, which, when placed in bags and worn around the neck, were reckoned as sovereign remedies for scrofula. That is an archaic term encompassing a variety of skin diseases. Other 19th century sources suggest that living toads be placed in bags, and as they slowly expire, so does the disease plaguing its victim. The um, technique for revealing a toadstone by allowing ants to pick away at the dead toad is also mentioned as a means of obtaining toad bones for medicinal cures. Another peculiar ritual involving toad bones, one sometimes known as water of the moon, was uh, practiced among those who wished to gain supernatural control over horses in uh, East Anglia and uh, Lincolnshire. Called the Toadmen, members of this cult would first obtain a toad, and either by the uh, anthill method or otherwise letting the toad's flesh decompose as it hung on the thorn of a bramble bush. Under a full moon at midnight, the bones would then be cast into the water of a running stream, 
where a particular bone would rise from among the others, and this, in some form, would necessarily be kept on the horseman's person and would ensure his uh, success in his work training horses. Some versions of the ritual demand that the horseman further spend three or sometimes five nights in the stable or the graveyard awaiting the devil, who will either attempt to steal the bone or take the horseman's soul. If this is resisted, mastery over horses is then his. First mentioned in the early 1800s, the cult only ceased to exist with the advent of World War II. Another curious bit of folk magic involves frog coffins. Similar to the witch bottles stashed in the hidden crevices of British and American homes, around 150 miniature frog coffins have been found hidden in the walls, foundations, crypts, and bell towers of about a half dozen churches in eastern Finland. Most of these were uncovered during renovations at the turn of the 18th and 19th century, and radioactive dating suggests they were hidden sometime between the late 17th and early 18th century. They are believed to have functioned as part of a magic ritual to obtain advantage in certain tasks. Many seem devoted to the success of fishermen, as the frogs are often found wrapped in shrouds of fishing net. In some cases, these Finnish frogs were found with grain in their mouths, suggesting the individual burying the frog wished his crops to thrive while another's failed. A specimen with its mouth stitched shut suggests desire to silence gossip or accusations. While these dead frogs may represent a rival whose advantage is to be killed off, they needn't necessarily be regarded as talismans of malevolent magic. Rather, they might be tools to counter an advantage magically obtained by a competitor. It's also been suggested that some were simply created to combat disease or other misfortunes assailing the individuals who placed them in the churches. Though strictly outside the purview of traditional Christianity, it's believed their placement in churches near crypts and churchyards is intended to channel the influence of these nearby dead according to a pagan understanding. If you were to make your own Finnish frog coffin, you would look for a frog which is reddish, ideally, and it must be caught with gloved hands, not touched, bare hands, and the coffin must be made before the frog is obtained of the wood of a single alder. The creature is laid in the coffin on its back, its rear legs are bound with red thread, and the lid is secured with eight wooden pegs with a ninth metal coffin nail driven to the frog's heart to pin it within the box. A few uh, specimens of these frog coffins are on display in Finnish museums, and I'll try to post images of one or two on the website. Let's return to the topic of toads and witchcraft, not the sort of magic practiced by uh, cunning folk, but witchcraft as conceived in terms of devil worship by uh, church and state tribunals. Before the 15th century, witchcraft was of really little concern as the church largely regarded it as a matter of just misguided superstition. Heresy, not witchcraft, was the matter of supreme interest, but those who strayed from orthodoxy were accused of the same offenses that later would be used to describe witchcraft. In a letter addressing false teaching sent by Gregory IX to bishops of the German Rhineland, we see the tropes of witchcraft popping up and toads, of course. He uh, writes of these heretics. When any novice is to be received among them and enters the sect of the damned for the first time, the shape of a certain toad appears to him. Some kiss this creature on the hindquarters and some on the mouth. They receive the tongue and saliva of the beast inside their mouths. Sometimes it appears unduly large, and sometimes equivalent to a goose or duck. Sometimes it even assumes the size of an oven. In Spain, there was a terrific amount of interest in witchcraft in the 
northeastern Basque regions, in particular in the province of Navarra, home to the uh, Cave of Witches at Sakura Murdi, uh, something discussed in our Cave Witches episode. In Navarra, a secular uh, royal tribunal took over much of the Inquisition's work from 1525 to 1675, and nearly half of their documented cases contain references to toads. Those who would ally themselves with the devil were said to be either branded with the image of a toad or a toad's foot, or the same figure would appear in the left eye of the devil's servant. In a case from 1525, flayed roasted toads ground into a powder and mixed with a certain herb are strewn over the mountains to blight them. In a case from 1534, there are again references to a powder made from burnt toads, now mixed with other dreadful things, black spiders, the livers of children, animal hearts, and filth, all used to poison the land. Toad blood and a live toad with its legs tied are touched to male and female victims to kill them. And in 1576, we hear of toad water, or water mixed with this powdered toad, used in blasphemous baptisms, somehow involving uh, stirring or sprinkling with the severed arm of a baby. In another case from 1576 from the village of Pedro Miera, we find three women, each named Maria, accused of witchcraft involving toads, of course. The first is accused of taking the life of a neighbor with whom she's quarreled, while at the same time suspiciously refusing to kill a particularly fat and repulsive toad. And the second, when spotted in the fields at midnight in her dressing gown, is accused of poisoning the crops with toad venom. And the third came under suspicion for merely doting on a corpulent toad, which was uh, proudly hung over her front door in a cage. Novice witches who had not yet earned the right to attend the Sabbath were often said to be assigned the task of feeding and caring for toads. In 1575, a witness testified to hearing a sound like the singing of toads and seeing the accused feeding the creatures on bits of bread she first chewed in her mouth to moisten. The defendant, Teresa de Odio, was also said to have declared that those toads were her saints and not the ones that were in the church. There are also numerous references to less ordinary toads. For instance, a report from 1609 speaks of a demon in the form of a toad with its face like a man's, and it is clothed in velvet or luxurious cloth that fits close to the body. Elsewhere, I find these uh, Natalie attired toads referred to as husbands given to the witches. And speaking of well-decorated toads, there's also a report from 1570 of an encounter with a pair of witches who were carrying in their skirts three toads which were outfitted with tiny bells and shaken like musical instruments. The toads were bells. One last reference mentioning toads and musical instruments employed in Witches' Sabbath in Navarra. It's a little vague on its sources, but interesting nonetheless. This is an extract from a chapter on the witch mania from Charles Mackay's delightful 1841 classic, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. When this ceremony was concluded, they were all amused by a dance of toads. Thousands of these creatures sprang out of the earth and standing on their hind legs, danced while the devil played the bagpipes or the trumpet. These toads were all endowed with the faculty of speech and entreated the witches to reward them with the flesh of unbaptized babes for their exertions to give them pleasure. The witches promised compliance. The devil bade them remember to keep their word and then, stamping his foot, caused all the toads to sink into the earth in an instant. Across the border in France, in Gascony, another historically Basque region, Pierre de Lancre, judge at numerous 17th century witchcraft trials, 
also mentions uh, witches gathered at a ceremony baptizing toads. Which were clothed in red or black velvet, with a bell at the neck and another to their feet. And in northern France, in Arras, witches were reported feeding communion wafers to toads in 1459. Charges in this case were part of an effort by the church to recast followers of the ascetic Waldensians sect as witches. In the Italian Cotian Alps, we also find this sect painted with the same witchy brush. In fact, the Waldensians were more like early Protestants than the uh, Gnostic Cathars with whom they're sometimes confused. But this didn't stop inquisitors from offering lurid descriptions of their activities, of course, at times involving toads. In 1388, a member of the sect, Antonio Golosna, so goes the testimonies, confessed that members of his faith gathered on Epiphany during which believers consumed a Eucharist consisting of bread and a drink brewed from the excrement of a large toad kept for that purpose under the bed of an elderly female member. While this concoction was recognized as extremely foul and caused those who imbibed it to swell up dangerously near death, its consumption also somehow forever bound members to this secret order. After these Eucharistic feasts, there followed an orgy. There was also some worship of the dragon in the book of Revelation, but I'm not sure if that was before or after the orgy. I'm sure a fair number of you have been waiting to hear of a link between witches and the hallucinogenic effects of uh, bufotoxins. It's true that toads are mentioned in quite a few descriptions that sound like or are explicitly identified as recipes for the uh, flying ointment supposedly used to transport witches into the fantastic realm of the witches' sabbath. But more common by far are members of the nightshade family, belladonna, henbane, and datura. And these would be much more efficacious in inducing those uh, hallucinatory dreams that were interpreted as uh, otherworldly revels. The problem in assigning much role to bufotoxins here is the fact that toads in Britain and the European countries we've been discussing exude a relatively tiny amount of the psychotropic substance. Toads of the New World are loaded with much more bufotoxin. One of these is the cane toad, Bufo-Rinella, that invasive species best known for infesting Australia, Florida, and other southern states. But the creature's native habitat is South and Central America and the Caribbean, where one use of this toxin would be of particular interest to horror fans. In the shadows of the imagination <laughs> lies the ultimate nightmare. Don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. The Serpent and the Rainbow. This 1988 film, directed by Wes Craven, is very loosely inspired by true events, as they say. The live burial here is part of the process of zombification, a subject investigated by Harvard anthropologist and ethnobotanist Wade Davis in his 1985 book, the Serpent and the Rainbow. Davis first visited Haiti after hearing of the 1980 appearance of a man who claimed to have been enslaved as a zombie. He identified himself as Clervius Narcisse, a man whose death certificate had been signed by doctors 18 years before. Davis observed the preparation of five different zombie poisons prepared by sorcerers or bakors in five separate villages. While they varied greatly, a commonality was the inclusion of the bufotoxins from dried skins of the cane toad and tetrodotoxin from the pufferfish, with the uh, latter presumed to play a slightly greater role. A species of tree frog was also common, but its toxin is merely an irritant and was presumably a uh, non-active ingredient like the addition of ground human skulls and sea worms. 
Davis interviewed Narcisse, who recalled an attack by a bokor, an array of symptoms and paralysis that followed, and eventually listening to his sister weeping as he was pronounced dead. He experienced sensations of floating and disorientation in the morgue and at his funeral, and the following day he was disinterred by the bokor and taken to a plantation. The next two years, he spent laboring in a perpetual state of dreamlike confusion, something presumably maintained by periodic doses of another substance, perhaps containing datura, as the effects of the original powder would have been too debilitating for work on the plantation. After two years, the slave master died, the drugging stopped, and Narcisse eventually made his way back to his home village, where he identified himself. Naturally, the framework of indigenous beliefs in zombies would have been essential in shaping how any uh, pharmacological effects would have been interpreted. Davis's theories have certainly not gone unquestioned. Among other things, uh, samples of the zombie powder examined by colleagues were found to contain amounts of the tetrodotoxin of the pufferfish that researchers believed inadequate to uh, produce the presumed effects. Skepticism today has come to dominate academic attitudes towards uh, his research, but Davis has argued that five specimens of a recipe do not define the entire phenomenon, and that a single instance in which the powder worked, as described, would be enough upon which to build an enduring mythology of zombies. Whatever ingredients are in the witch's brew used in the uh, zombification process, Confusion and suppression of vital signs is uh, far removed from the vivid hallucinations we associate with ecstatic flights to the witch's Sabbath. But there is a form of toad venom that comes closer to this. It's from another species, the Colorado River toad, or Sonoran Desert toad, Bufo alvarius, which is much more potent than the cane toad and strongly associated with psychedelic experiences. This species, found in the American Southwest in Mexico, is the toad most responsible for any uh, toad-licking and for the founding of the Church of the Toad of Light, which is not so much an actual church, but a name for the mission under which Albert Moss, author of 1983's Bufo Alvarius, the psychedelic toad of the Sonoran Desert, promoted his uh, favorite form of psychoactive use, not by licking, of course, but by drying and smoking the venom. Today, the process has become less do-it-yourself. It's streamlined to more efficiently extract the alkaloid bufotenine, a naturally occurring type of DMT, producing intense five to 20 minute trips. In the last few years, it's been repackaged for adventurous types as part of a life-changing shamanic experience as has been done with uh, ayahuasca. All without the uh, fuss and muss of uh, sea worms and skulls and dead baby arms. YouTube is awash with people attempting to articulate what one experiences on the drug, or promoting certain rituals or toad gurus. Among these, Nacho Vidal, a Spanish porn star and Instagram influencer, who just this June became the center of a manslaughter investigation when a toad venom ritual at his home resulted in the death of fashion photographer Jose Luis Abad. A sad story, and perhaps we'll be hearing more of these. But what about the toads themselves, the ones that are killed and dried and pulverized and smoked? In their honor, we'll close the show with the authentic sounds of the Bufo Alvarius, mixed with the ecstatic sounds and mutterings of those connecting with the ineffable toad of light. A somewhat smaller toad with a much shorter trail is a Colorado River toad, Bufo Alvarius, with a voice at the dominant frequency of 1135 cycles per second.
I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the uh, opportunity to share episodes with friends if you do. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the uh, making of the podcast. That's uh, lots of material that I cut out for show length. And there are digital downloads of rare books that are consulted in the preparation of the show. Uh, They receive the show soundscapes you hear in the background, my Krampus book, and a special mystery kit mailed to our top-level donors. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. Can you imagine? We uh, understand that things are a bit tight now. A lot of people laid off work, so if you can't donate, another thing to consider would be to leave a review, as these uh, greatly help the show. I uh, do want to thank our new patrons, Megan Forrest, very generous, uh, Kaisa, I hope I'm pronouncing it, Devin Gott, Kara, Simon Melville, Perry Sylvester, Ryan Crum, and Stephanie Feldman. And thanks very much to Page and Margins and uh, Todd Orbert, BU, for their very kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't yet, you might want to have a look at our website, boneandsickle.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook group, Twitter, Patreon, and Instagram along with show notes with plenty of images and video links to film trailers, clips, and music used in the program. Sound design otherwise is all original for the show. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can check out at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>